This program is brought to you by the University of Southern Queensland. And now on Phoenix Radio, Spaced Out. Yes, you are listening to Spaced Out on Phoenix Radio. My name is Jack Lewis and I'm going to be with you for the next hour. Good news for you with the second donut day in Queensland in a row today. Do you ever have a donut on donut day? The Premier actually tweeted that it was a wise thing to do yesterday, so I'm taking that as justification. I actually arrived home last night to a massive tray of donuts on my kitchen bench that my uncle must have brought around for afternoon tea. But he wasn't there, so I'm guessing no one was home to have it with him, um, and he left. So I was, I was sad that I missed him, but I was very happy to eat some donuts. I have no idea whether he brought them intentionally or if it was just a huge coincidence. But I enjoyed my donuts on Donut Day. Not so good news. Not so good news though down in New South Wales with them recording 1,480 cases today, and Victoria with 221 cases, providing some hope though is the fact that they have 74 and 61% of first doses, respectively. Back in Queensland, though, it's another beautiful sunny day in Ipswich, 26 degrees today. It was a bit warm over the weekend, wasn't it? Very hot. It's been a mixed week, though, for Ipswich athletes, with Springfield's own Ash Barty bowing out at the third round of the US Open on Sunday. And former Ipswich State High student Ronaldo Mulatalo's Cronulla Sharks were knocked out of the NRL with the Titans sealing their fate when they beat the Warriors on Sunday. On the flip side, though, it was good news It was good news for Titans superstar and fellow Ipswich boy David Fafita, who really bossed the game. What a fabulous story he is. Still only 21. Get this, when he was in school, he used to wake up at 4am every day to catch the train down to his school, the elite Kiebra Park School for Rugby League on the Gold Coast. And, of course... More great news because Ipswich Paralympian, Paralympian Susan Sipple won silver in the Paracanoe. Also, today is National Literacy Day. I never know whether it's literacy or literacy. Literacy, literacy, I don't know. Maybe I should brush up. But hey, coming up on the show today, we learn some more about space with Dr. Jonty Horner from the USQ and mental health, of course, with Rachel Hannum and... One of the great pop groups is back. Have you heard their songs yet? We'll play them a bit later on. And Pat hits the streets to find your thoughts on Queensland's current hot topic. But up next, drowning has risen 20%. Why is it and what can we do about it? You are listening to Spaced Out on phoenixradio.com.au. My name is Jack Lewis. So much of our lifestyles as Australians are centred around our waterways and even more as we move into the warmer months. But with any water recreation comes the risk of one of our biggest fears, drowning. Drownings in Australia have increased by 20% in the last 12 months from the previous year. Joining me to discuss these concerning numbers is Surf Lifesaving Australia General Manager of Coastal Safety, Shane Dorr. Shane, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having us. Much appreciated. Why have we seen an increase in numbers this year? 
Well, we're seeing an increase for a number of different reasons, and it's you know it's quite sad and tragic when there's 294 uh, drowning deaths in yeah. the past 12 months across Australian coastline and inland waterways, mm. and a couple of the factors are, are around a, a number of different things. We've got people who can't travel anymore overseas, and particularly also interstate at the moment for for a lot of the states. So we're seeing people recreating in more localised areas, and we're not saying local. They still may be more than 50, 60 kilometres away from the ho- their home, so they're, they're travelling down the coast or they're travelling to inland rivers and, and other areas to yep. actually have their holidays and have their breaks. And so what's happening is they're going to unfamiliar locations and, you know, quite often unpatrolled locations. And so they're getting into, you know, difficulty because they're unaware of the risks at those locations. And also what we're finding is there's been an increase in, in males. You know, males are are normally highly represented, but that number has been increasing. You know, it's 80% across all aquatic environments. And for the coast alone, it's increased to 90% being male. And they're taking more risks. So they're doing activities which are putting them at greater risk. And they're also consuming alcohol in many instances, which is, again, um, making it a riskier activity for them. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, because um, this year's drownings are obviously up to 294, up from 248 last year. We've seen annual deaths over 285 times in the last 10 years. Is it sort of because, um, do we have less last year or is it counterbalanced? People are going to those um, those areas that you talked about, those unpatrolled and unexplored, more sort of local areas and less people are, are drowning at, at, at in the regular areas that they would normally? No, well, what we're seeing is, you know, we're getting uh, obviously a, a greater increase in people visiting the coast. And mm. so, you know, a lot of people that would normally go holidaying interstate or overseas aren't doing that. So they're heading to the coast or to different waterways, particularly during the, the summer period and when they can, when COVID allows. Um, so we're, we're seeing that happening in part. Um, but what we're also seeing is that people are just unfamiliar with where they're going and what they're doing. Um, and that's probably the key thing is that it doesn't take long for someone to get in trouble if you're not understanding the environment that you're participating in. Yep. Um, and it's your understanding your own limitations um, and also what you're going to do if something does go wrong. Yep. Um, yeah. I, how do drownings actually happen? Because we often, we, we, always, we always think like, this, is, this will never happen to me. You know what I mean? Oh, 100%. We know, we know that everybody that heads out, no one goes out there to drown. Yep. You know, that's... You know, or, you know, a drowning death isn't an un- unintentional activity, you know. And so what we do know, there's a number of different things which are happening. As I said beforehand, a lot of it is complacency, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, in a, it's a purely people are unaware. So they're unaware of the area that they're heading to, uh, what the conditions may be. So if they're heading down the coast, they may not be able to identify a rip current. They may not be able to identify if there's an inshore hole or if there's any risks or hazards at that location. And the same thing may also apply if they go to a river or a lake um, where they go to a river and if it's, you know, a lot of our rivers are, um, aren't that clear to see through. So if you go to some of these rivers, there could be submerged logs in there, the water's moving differently, so there are currents within inside the rivers and it's just that unsuspecting um, uh, factors which come into play where people get themselves into trouble and they panic. Um, but we also know... There's other contributing factors to it. We know that people going out rock fishing or boating or on watercraft, you know, there's a lot of people not wearing life jackets where uh, wearing of a life jacket could actually be the difference of uh, saving their life or, or, you know, being a fatality, which is unfortunately happening. 
Um, we also know that um, with some of these things that uh, the alcohol consumption and, and drug consumption, um, when they're participating in these water activities, has led to fatalities. So it's a combination of things where, you know, we're just doing some things which, you know, we aren't aware of what the hazards are and the dangers and the risks associated with them. Uh, and that's leading to these fatalities. And so we do get fluctuations. And But if we have a look, um, if we go back to 2004 from a coastal environment, we know that we were having around about, you know, 107 um, drowning deaths per year. And now that's increased up to, uh, on average, and now it's increased up to 114 on average. But, you know, if we look at the last two years, we've had 136 coastal drowning deaths this year, 120 last year. So the numbers are increasing, and whilst we know we're getting more people to the coast, you know most of these drownings, uh, if not all the drowning deaths at all locations, are preventable by understanding your limitations, where you're swimming, how to be safe. And if you're unsure, the best thing we can advise people is stay out and find a location which you know is going to be OK. Shane, thank you so much for speaking to me, and thank you for the work that Surf Life Saving Australia does to keep us safe. No worries. And can we just ask people this year, if you're heading somewhere, please head to a patrolled beach, swim between those red and yellow flags. Absolutely. That was Shane Dorr from Surf Life Saving Australia, General Manager for Coastal Safety. You're listening to Spaced Out on Phoenix Radio, and we might move straight talkback style to... Into the Universe. Into the Universe with Johnny Horner. That is right. I am joined each week and Pat every other week by Dr. John T. Horner, an astrophysics professor at the University of Southern Queensland. John T., are you there? Yep, I'm here, hearing loud and clear. Great. Thank you so much for joining me again, John T. It's another huge week in space news. Over the last couple of nights, uh, we're going to see a couple of planets in our solar system appear very close to the moon. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Yeah, it's a good time to go out in the evening and take some pretty photos, essentially. Yep. We've got Mercury visible in the evening sky. Mercury is probably the hardest of the five naked eye planets to spot because it tends to hang around pretty close to the sun. But it's up above the western horizon in the evening sky after sunset at the minute. A little bit hard to find. Brighter than the brightest stars, but it doesn't look it because it's down in the glare of twilight. But tomorrow night, Thursday night, you get the moon acting as a little bit of a signpost. You'll have a beautiful, very thin crescent moon just above and to the right of Mercury. And then the day after, on Friday, mm. the moon will slide higher into the sky and it'll be next to Venus, which you can't miss in the western sky after sunset. Venus is the brightest, most spectacular thing. It triggers all these UFO reports. It's like an aircraft coming in with its headlights on. Yep. And on Friday, the moon is sat right next to it. So it's a couple of good nights to get out, take some pretty photos, and see what you can see. What are the ideal times that we should be out there on Thursday and Friday? In the hour or so after sunset, if you wait too long, they'll have set and you won't see anything. You know, Mercury yep. in particular is quite low in the sky. So you want to be out between six and seven, really. That's what I'd be looking at. Right. Obviously, for the Moon and Venus, the day after, you've got about an extra hour because every day the Moon gets 40 minutes further from the Sun in the sky, essentially, thereabouts. It takes 28 days to do one lap of the sky, and we've got 24 hours in a day, so each day it moves a 24th, 28th of the way around, if that makes sense. So every day you get a bit longer. But this is also a really good week to look up, because with the Moon being a thin crescent, it gets out of the way really quickly, right. which means most of the night it's pitch black, it's properly dark, and you can see the Milky Way, you can see all of the other wonders of the sky without the moon being a nuisance and interfering. Yeah. And how... So does this happen every 28 days, these planets align with the with the moon? 
It does. Sometimes the moon's a little bit further from them in the sky. Sometimes it's a little closer. Yeah. And that's because the moon follows an orbit around the Earth, a path around the Earth that is tilted to the path that the Earth follows around the sun and that the other planets follow around the sun. So sometimes it's a bit further away, sometimes a bit closer. What's useful this month is that, you know, it just so happens that Mercury is very visible in the evening sky. It's about as far from the sun as it can get. So the moon's flying by at essentially the perfect time for you to get a really good view. Next month, the moon will still fly past Mercury, but by then Mercury will be lost way in the sun's glare and you just won't see it happen. Right. So if you want a nice view tomorrow night, head out over the next two nights, head out and have a look at the view or maybe even a romantic dinner, Jonty, looking at that nice view. That'd be nice. Absolutely. Head out, take a picnic and eat your, eat your grub as the sun sets and you watch the sky appear, see the stars appear, see the moon, see Mercury. Yep. And just, yeah, cuddle up and have a good time. Now, Jonty, on the last night of August, so last week, there was another big event that occurred in Europe. They spotted mo multiple all-grid meteor outbursts. Now, I've got to admit, you sent me an article on this. I don't think I understood a single word. So what is an all-grid meteor and why is it so significant? Oh, that's all good. That was the only article for this that I could find, unfortunately, to prep you. And it's one of those things where... Yeah. We, we don't get quite as much coverage of events like this as we do some of the more galactic, more distant objects. And I think that's a bit of a shame. Yeah. Meteors are shooting stars, essentially. They're when you get grains of dust, bits of debris burning up harmlessly in Earth's atmosphere. And occasionally the Earth is running through more dust than debris, so we see more meteors. And that's when you get a meteor shower. The Aurigid meteor shower happens every year, but normally they're only one or two per hour. They're very minor because the dust is very widely spread out. But occasionally we plough through a denser filament of dust, an area that's dirtier essentially, and that means we get more dust hitting the atmosphere, we get an outburst. And one of the great advances of our science over the last 20 years or so is we've gone from these things being a total surprise when they happen to having the ability to predict them. And this little outburst that happened the other day, if it had happened whilst it was night in Australia, you'd have seen tens of meteors per hour. It would have been quite impressive, but not truly spectacular. But it was predicted well in advance, and the time at which the rates peaked, the time at which you saw the most meteors, yeah. was within a minute of the predicted time. So it's not just something really cool and spectacular that happened, but it's a real triumph of scientific achievement that people were able to predict this with such accuracy, predicting when we'd plough through a stream of debris that is so fine and dispersed that you can't see it until we're running into it. Great. Thank you, John. As always, I've, I've learned so much, so thank you for your time. I, especially, I've learned how to say, is it a regrid? Aurigid. Aurigid. So meteor showers are named after the constellation from which the meteors appear to come. Right. So all the meteors in a shower are going in the same direction, but as they come towards you, they appear to diverge, spread out across the sky. It's a matter of perspective. It's like if you stood over the highway on a bridge, the road's parallel to the other side of the road, but they converge in the distance to a single point on the horizon. The point in the sky where that point is for a meteor shower is what we name the meteor shower after. So the Geminids in December are named after Gemini because they come from there. The Aurigids come from the constellation of Auriga, the charioteer. It's a northern hemisphere constellation, but we do see it from here, visible in the hours before dawn just at the moment. Great. Thanks again, Jonty. Um, and, and Pat, we'll catch up with you next week. So thank you. Awesome. Looking forward to it. That was Professor Jonty Horner from the University of Southern Queensland. You're listening to Spaced Out on Phoenix Radio. And now one of my favourite songs, Afterglow by Ed Sheeran. It's 128. You are listening to Spaced Out on phoenixradio.com.au. My name is Jack, and it is time for... The Universe in Our Mind with Dr. Rachel Hannah. Hannah, Hannah, Hannah. 
That's right. Each week on Spaced Out, we are joined by Dr. Rachel Hannam, a clinical psychologist and director of North Brisbane Psychologists. Rachel, thank you for coming in. Thanks so much, Jack, for having me. It's great to great to meet you in person. Last time we talked was over the phone. So yeah, it is. It's good to talk. Um, today we're talking about conversations about mental health and, and how we actually talk to people about mental health. And there's so much uh, going on in our work. We always hear about mental health and having conversations with others about mental health. Things like Are You OK Day are promoted so heavily. Yes. But it, it's still such an awkward thing to do, isn't it? How do we actually talk to our friends about it? That's right. I mean, people often remark that there's still a stigma. And what do we mean by stigma or awkwardness? What we mean is shame. Shame is the human emotion where we fear being judged and negatively evaluated. And one of the areas where we're vulnerable to shame and discomfort is talking about our mental health. And that pretty much applies to everybody. Uh, Although I'm so pleased that the generations younger than me are, you know, talking about it so much more openly. Um, But it can be really hard to talk to your friends or your family about your mental health struggles. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, I would usually start by suggesting to people that they get a sense of their friend or family member's attitude towards mental illness and mental health issues. I think we need to be discerning about you know, who we trust and how much we trust them because, you know, I have got clients who've told me they've disclosed to a grandparent or parent that they're taking antidepressants, for example, and they've received judgment and that doesn't help at all, of course. So just get a sense about their attitude towards mental health and mental illness. You could ask some general questions and then you might have a sense of how much do I trust this person to listen and accept me, you know, for what I'm going through. Yeah. How would you encourage like a family member or or a friend to um, that that's not struggling with it to um, how would you encourage them to to respond. talk to yeah. Or, yeah to respond yeah yeah or perhaps they they sense that something's yeah. going on I mean I think we can talk about it in very um, general vernacular by saying you know I've noticed some changes in you a little bit lately and I'm just a bit worried about you I'm I'm concerned. Um, you know, and, and obviously find a time when you have a bit of time, make sure you're in a private place, all these basics, but people don't always prepare. So they sometimes ask their loved one when they're on the hop. And so you've got to choose your timing, choose your place, make sure you've got privacy and make sure you pre- whether you're the person asking about mental health or the one who's approaching a loved one to express um, some of your experience, be prepared with a few examples, you know. So right. if you've noticed changes in your loved one, you know, they might get defensive and say, no, I'm fine, nothing's wrong. But then if you've got some examples of changes you've noticed in their behaviour, then, you know, you've got some data, you've got some observations. And if you're the one who's been experiencing mental health struggles and you're being brave and you're talking about it, again, pre-prepare yourself with some examples of the kind of experiences and struggles that you've been having with your mental health. Um, I think another really important point here is whether you're the asker or the teller, you know, discuss about privacy and confidentiality. You know, that'll help the um, you or the other person feel safe in having this discussion. You know, I want you to respect, you know, uh, the the confidentiality of what I'm talking to you about or keep my privacy, you know, what I'm saying to you private. Just get an agreement around that beforehand to create a safe space for yourselves. How can we as friends, um, even if we don't suspect that our our friends are, are struggling with it, but how can we sort of break that stigma in our everyday conversations? 
in everyday conversations. Yeah, or just like um, breaking down that barrier of the hesitancy of talking about it. Mm. Well, sometimes you just have to do it. Yeah. You just have to be brave and, you know, say, look, I've been struggling. Yeah. Um, you know, I've been struggling to get out of bed or I've been feeling a lot of anxiety lately. Right. Um, sometimes a good segue for people could be getting into, uh, you know, online forums or Facebook groups or whatever their social media platforms are they use because there's almost always pages or groups or forums for um, reading other people's experiences and that might actually help you normalise what you're going through, realise you're not the only one and work up the courage to just say something basic to your loved one like, you know, hey, I've been wanting to talk to you about my struggles lately. Yep. Um, and also it might be useful to say this <laughs> very often in communication with friends and loved ones, you know, when we say, look, I wanted to let you know what I've been struggling with. Our, you know, friend, parent, whoever says, oh, well, this is what you've got to do now. They give you advice. Yeah. <laughs> you probably don't want unsolicited advice. So I'm clear these days with friends and family if I'm not ready for advice or wanting advice and I just want to let them know what I've been feeling, I just I say that, you know, I'm not really looking for advice. I'm just yep. looking for someone to listen to me. Well, thank you, Rachel. That's been very helpful what you've um, given us today and I really appreciate you coming in. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's Dr. Rachel Hannam from North Brisbane Psychologists and that was the universe in our mind on Spaced Out. You're listening to Phoenix Radio. Jack Lewis with you for Spaced Out on phoenixradio.com.au and that was Most Girls by Hayley Steinfeld. Hey, some breaking news. It's just been announced that all the NRL finals matches will be played in Queensland and the NRL grand final will be played at Suncorp Stadium on the 3rd of October. That's right. The NRL grand final will be played at Suncorp Stadium in Brisbane in the 3rd of October, which is exciting because it's normally always in Sydney Voluntary assisted dying, or euthanasia as it's more commonly known, could be legalised in Queensland within a couple of weeks. Last-minute changes to the Voluntary Assisted Dying Bill are set to be considered by Parliament, giving faith-based organisations protection if they object to undertaking the practice. But otherwise, it's all systems go. So is there widespread community support for these new laws? Spaced Out co-host Pat, Pat Stibby has been asking the people of Springfield. Let's find out what Pat found out. A bill to legalise voluntary assisted dying in Queensland will be debated next week after a parliamentary committee recommended it be passed following widespread consultation and a report from the Queensland Law Reform Commission. I went out into the wild to see what the public's opinion was on voluntary assisted dying and whether or not it should be legalised in Queensland. And here are the results. It's legal in other states, so we should be over here. Very good answer. I like it. What about you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah? That's it. It's already around. Why not? Cool. Yeah, I mean, my family takes it on board in the sense that you're then not being a dependent on the family. So, and I guess the welfare system overall in general yeah so yeah i probably support it i do think that voluntary euthanasia should be legal in in queensland particularly this year one of my friends died of melanoma and suffered a lot toward the end and i know she would have liked the opportunity 
yep. to have ended her suffering earlier if she could? Um, yes, because I think that everybody should have a right um, in their decision as to whether they want to be alive or not. I mean, I think it should be allowed. You know, people should be allowed to do... Um, if they have, you know, got end of life in, you know, a short amount of time, then if they feel it's time for them, then it's time for them. Um, yes, it should be legal because you're going to die anyway. So you may as well be given the choice. Um, I do think it, sh- it should be illegal. Oh, legal. No, legal because um, for cases like when people have dementia and Alzheimer's, when they have diseases that are pretty much the worst case scenario for when you get to that age, um, you want, don't want to keep living like that. So, yeah, I think it should be legal. I think uh, euthanasia, uh, euthanasia shouldn't be allowed um, only because uh, it would be a concern that they would find a cure for whatever ailments you have and that you could be saved to lead a normal productive life. So therefore I'm against introduction of euthanasia. I think euthanasia should be allowed for the sick and ill um, because for some people it's easier for them to be put out of their misery and their pain and suffering than it is to let them live and suffer through it. Yes, I do, because it should be their choice. And also, if you're at a point where you can't actually, you know, survive any further, why would you put yourself through that pain and suffering uh, and your family members through that if you could have a, a good ending and actually speak to them beforehand? Um, yes, because I did an essay yep. on it. Um, yeah, um, because also, like, so many people who have been diagnosed with a terminal illness, they're like, you know, they're already on their deathbed, they're already dying, and usually it just gets progressively worse. And I think a lot of people, well, I can't speak for them, but a lot of people would prefer to just have, like, their last couple of days and be happy with their family and do the things they love and not just get, like, be cared for and, like, just be sitting in a bed and be getting sicker the whole time. I just yeah. don't feel like they should be forced to be alive yep. if they don't want to be in pain. Awesome, perfect, thank you. What about you? Um, I think if you're in pain and it's your own decision, then you should be able to have that option. Hmm. Um, taking that option away from someone who has actually done all the research and thought about it and it's their life and it's their loved ones that it's going to impact it's up to them yeah and like i said that option should be there i think so yes because it is a voluntary personal choice of course um because at some point there's a lot of suffering and to some people there is no positives in extending that suffering there is no point to them even because it's all about quality of life but what is the point of quality of life if it's no longer a positive life after that point? Uh, I do, because if you're terminally ill and there's not real point of living life if you can't do much, then why not? You should be able to choose. And there we have it, folks. Almost a unanimous opinion in the public. But it is something that almost everyone agrees on, and there's some very valid points in regards to quality of life and choice. Back to you in the studio, Jack. Pat Stebby there, reporting for Spaced Out on phoenixradio.com.au. You might not recognise this next song, but the voices might sound a bit familiar. Try and work it out. We're going to talk about it next on Phoenix Radio. You are listening to Spaced Out on phoenixradio.com.au. And yes, they are back. ABBA have just released two new singles and a brand new album coming in November. Joining me to discuss is University of Southern Queensland lecturer and popular culture and Eurovision expert, Dr Jess Carniel. Jess, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. First of all, what's the hype been like for, uh, for the new releases? It has been absolutely 
insane on the so- the social, sorry. Yeah. The Eurovision fans in particular are really wild for these new releases. They, you know, got up early so that they could listen to them straight away as soon as they were released. And overwhelmingly, the response has been so popular because ABBA are back and they are uncompromisingly ABBA. Yeah. Um, can you give me a sense of just what it means for them to be back? Well, you know, they were such a big thing back in the 70s and the early 80s, and then yeah. they disbanded. And they were so adamant that they were never going to reunite. I think back in 2014, yeah. Bjorn was like, no, we're not going to ever perform as ABBA again. But very soon after that, they actually started developing ABBA Voyage. Mm. And, you know, they, they have come back. It, what it's showing is this idea of our memory of ABBA, so who we remember them to be, to sound like, to look like, which I think is the amazing part of this. Mm. Uh, so it's tying into that memory that we have of them, all of the good feelings and associations that we have of them, and the fact that you know it, it is still fresh new music from this incredibly beloved outfit, this band. Yeah. Now, I'm a bit young to have seen them in their prime, <laughs> But I've heard... As am I, thank you. <laughs> yeah, 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 of course. I, but I've heard that they were somewhat daggy back in the day. Is it, now they have sort of a real cult following and, like, I, I love listening to them with my mates. What, why is that? Well, you know, they first won the Eurovision Song Contest in 1974 and Eurovision itself does have a a bit of a reputation for dagginess in the past. It is starting to shrug that off now and it's becoming cool, at least. That's what I tell myself every year. (laughs) (laughs) And so they became popular from that and they were really popular in Australia. And I think part of it is that we do in Australia have a taste for that slightly cheesy uh, kind of popular culture. So they were huge here. They came and toured Australia. Yep. You can actually see some of the footage of their Australian tour in um, in their new video clips for these new songs. Yep. So they did always have that slight dagginess. They, you know, they had these outlandish outfits, which, you know, they put together more to get by Swedish tax laws than anything else. Yep. And so it all sort of was quite cheesy, quite daggy, but also incredibly infectious that, you know, you just had to go along with it. But I think also in Australia, you've got to remember that in the early 1990s, I think it was 1994, we had Muriel's Wedding. Yeah. And that just completely revitalised Australia's love love of ABBA. Uh, then in the late 1990s, 99, I think it was... Mamma Mia hit Broadway, mm. then became, you know, a movie starring Meryl Streep. So they've had all of these moments where their music just keeps on coming back and we keep on remembering the joy of what it is to, to sing and dance along to ABBA. And it is one of the, the more fun uh, groups to sing and dance along to where you try and do the, the head movements and yeah. whatnot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, you've sort of tracked the history of Eurovision. What sort of influence do, have they had on the competition? They certainly were one of the early breakthrough acts. There were a couple uh, that came before in the 1960s that we can consider like breaking through to the mainstream. But I think ABBA were the ones that really did it. Uh, And in particular, I think what was interesting about that is it signals the beginning of the Swedish uh, pop music industry. And it's one of the things that we don't always realize how many songs are out there that are written by Swedish songwriters. They are huge. Um, Britney's Hit Me Baby One More Time was written by a Swedish songwriter. Yeah. Uh, so it signals that beginning of that pop music industry and, it, you know, also the, the 
the dominance of this kind of cheery, popular, almost quasi-mainstream music in Eurovision itself. Yeah. Uh, and Sweden have risen to be one of the most successful nations in Eurovision. Yeah. I just have one more question for you. Now, we heard the first song, Don't Shut Me Down, before. We're about to hear I Still Have Faith in You, which is your favourite out of the two songs. I will have to say I Still Have Faith in You. It's... Uh, it sounds like, well, both of them do this. They yep. both sound like they could have been released in 1970s or, or the 1980s, but they don't sound dated. They still sound fresh and they just sound like ABBA. But I think the reason why I like this one is because it speaks directly to that kind of nostalgia. Okay. And that's part of what we're feeling and the part of the excitement that we're having for ABBA's return is that, that feeling of nostalgia. Yeah, well, you've certainly got me excited because I haven't <laughs> heard it yet. So I'm excited to hear I still have faith in you. Dr. Jess Carniel, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. That was Dr. Jess Carniel from the University of Southern Queensland. And I'm excited because this is I Still Have Faith in You by ABBA. Thank you so much for tuning in to Spaced Out today. That was ABBA with I Have Still Faith. I have faith. I still have faith in you. I absolutely love that. This was Spaced Out on Phoenix Radio. Don't go anywhere, though, because in just a few minutes, it's hero time with Russell. Betty and Michaela aren't in today, but they'll be back next week for a huge show. And tonight, from 5pm, the always hilarious Chris and Alfie show. This is Jack Lewis for Spaced Out on Phoenix Radio, signing out.